baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm reporter Jenna Lane, and our guest this week is San Francisco Mayor London Breed. Thank you for joining us on In-Depth today. We are happy to have you in the studio for, I think, maybe the first time since you have been elected. Maybe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe. How are you settling in to the office and to what must be a pretty significant change in your in your life yeah I'm settling in just fine Uh, I have a great team of people who are helping me to implement many of the things that I promised voters I would do we are already up and running and I'm most excited about the fact that we are looking at building a modular housing factory to build more housing Uh, San Francisco will be the first customer of this modular housing factory and we are committed to $100 million for affordable housing once this is built. So many of the things that I talked about in the campaign trail are things that we're able to make a reality sooner rather than later. So I'm really excited getting settled in and pushing to address many of the challenges that we face. Housing, homelessness, transit, public safety, the list goes on and we're tackling those issues. Who might live in that modular housing? So it could be formerly homeless individuals, the people who we see every day who we know need housing, families, people who need housing. It's less expensive to build modular housing, uh, which makes the money that we have to build affordable housing specifically stretch a little bit further. In general, um, it seems like a lot of your emphasis when we talk about homelessness, at least so far in your administration, has been on that supply And you've emphasized on a couple of occasions that most of the money we spend as a city goes toward keeping people in the housing they already have. Can you talk about some of the housing production goals that you hope to facilitate as mayor? So the perfect example of supply uh, providing an opportunity, mentally, we just opened a 50-unit building The building was already there, needed some work and renovation and some TLC, and we placed uh, 50 individuals who were struggling with homelessness for years in those units. And it took a lot of work because in having conversations even with some of the residents there, they were struggling. They were struggling with a number of challenges, including drug addiction. And getting them into a safe, affordable place with supportive housing and services has really transformed their lives. And that's 50 people who are no longer homeless on the streets of San Francisco. One of the things that I most recently did was give a directive to city departments um, that work on ADUs, accessory dwelling units, which are also known as in-laws. We have over 900 possible units in the pipeline that have been boggled down with bureaucracy, um, getting mixed information about how Um, they need to proceed in order to get that housing done. And in some cases, it's taken over 18 months to get a permit to build 
a in-law in a building that typically is a rent control building. This is the only way that we could provide rent control units in our housing stock. That's 900 units that are waiting for approvals. My executive directive was that we make sure that the process is completed within six months for those backlogged units and moving forward, all new applications will take no more than four months. These are affordable units. Usually they're less expensive to build and most likely will be rent controlled because they're built in rent controlled buildings that already exist. And part of what we have to do as a city is get creative, modular housing, in-law units, identifying underutilized sites to build a housing like we did on Hayton Stanyan, the McDonald site, where we have the possibility to build anywhere between 120 and 160 units. We also need to make sure we cut back on the bureaucratic red tape that gets in the way of housing production. We have people who are struggling with homelessness. We have people who can't find homes and work in San Francisco and commuting from long places, people who grew up here who can no longer afford to live here. And part of how we make San Francisco a more affordable place is making sure that we're building all types of housing for all income levels. That is the most important thing. One thing I've heard from folks in the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing is that you take quite personally some of the stories of the people that you meet. And I'm wondering how those personal stories have informed some of your thinking around like the policy changes we might need or what have been some of those situations folks who've gotten into a navigation center or someone who is commuting from Vallejo or Tracy into the city. How have some of those stories informed your work? So um, I have this uh, man who is a senior. He's a schizophrenic. He's a sweetheart when he's in his, you know, a good place. And then sometimes he kind of loses it. But the whole neighborhood and the hate, they love him. But then he does things that really are problematic. He can sometimes get violent, but everybody wants to help him. We've gotten him into the navigation center, not just one navigation center, but different navigation center locations. He won't stay. He had some challenges with lice and we couldn't help serve him because he basically wouldn't agree to it. And there were some challenges there. We had a housing opportunity for him. And we, at one point, couldn't find him. The list goes on and on and on. And he's been around for so long. The police try to help him. The merchants try to help him. There have been a number of challenges that have existed and a lot of frustration because people are wondering, why can't you just help him? He's like an institution in the neighborhood, but people want to see him housed. Every time he gets his check at the beginning, he gets a Social Security check and he cashes it. And then some of the guys in the neighborhood rob him. It is frustrating. It is frustrating that the system doesn't work to help him. And so for me, this is why I care about the conservatorship law, SB 1045, because it will give us another tool. Someone like this, of course, needs medication, needs assistance. The goal is to keep him healthy, to keep him safe, to keep him clothed. (laughs) I mean, because that's another part of the challenge. And having a guardian who can help to make decisions for him is something that I think could lead to better results because so many people want to see him thrive. We don't want to take him from the neighborhood he loves. And in fact, 
there was a housing opportunity, a missed opportunity that would have been perfect uh, for him. And unfortunately, it didn't work out because, again, we couldn't find him at the time. For me, it's, it's personal because these are people. These are people. I mean, it could happen to you or I at any given time where one minute we're working a job and the next minute something changes and we need help and we don't even know it in some instances. And so I just think that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect to get a different result if we want to help people. And those people who are commuting into San Francisco are people that I grew up with. They wanted to live in San Francisco. They grew up in subsidized and in public housing with me and, you know, had a number of challenges and start having children and couldn't afford to live in San Francisco. And this is over 20 years ago. This is not even recently. And they're still working their jobs in the city, commuting to the city so that they can afford a place in Vallejo or Antioch or Fairfield. Part of why I push so hard for housing production, for paid internships for high school students, for opening the doors of opportunity for the next generation of San Franciscans has everything to do with my experience growing up here and watching the city change because we didn't make the best decisions around housing production. You've talked a lot about your personal experiences growing up in public housing and how that has informed some of your policies. And I wondered about your experience more recently as a renter and if that has had, uh, we haven't heard as much about how that might affect your thinking. Well, um, it's not a recent experience. It's like I've been I just a mean more recent, more recently than uh, yeah. growing up years. Well, I guess like, is what you know, I mean. So I lived in public housing over twenty years of my life, you know, and lived uh, as a renter the rest of the time. Um, so you know, it's challenging, and I know that. I mean, I had a roommate up until last year, and the only reason why I don't have a roommate because he moved in with his girlfriend, <laughs> and I was in the process before all of this happened of looking for another roommate. So thank goodness I got a raise. Um, it's expensive to live in San Francisco. And it's unfortunate that you have to even make six figures to afford to live here. That is absolutely insane. And when you think about, you know, families with kids, I had to also think as to whether or not I'd have kids or, you know, if I got married, could I afford to stay in San Francisco? Um, those are kinds of decisions that I think probably shaped how my life has turned out. And, you know, rent shouldn't be an obstacle to having a family. And so part of what I have, you know, tried to do as a policymaker, as someone who worked in the community, neighborhood preference is it's why I push so hard to pass that as a member of the Board of Supervisors, because we build all this new affordable housing and we wonder why the people who were born and raised in these neighborhoods had no chance of even getting access to those units. HUD, the federal government, had told us no, that they wouldn't allow us to use it because it perpetuates segregation. And I had to show them what the numbers said in terms of how it's created gentrification in the Western edition when it was meant to help support this community and it completely destroyed it. The whole lottery system and access to affordable housing did the whole opposite of what they claim it was supposed to do. And so I fight hard based on personal experience because I want the housing to go to the people who we know who need it. I want to just be able to swoop people up off the streets and put them into a unit. I want to be able to make sure that young people who turn 18 or 
folks who are now working even in my administration living at home with their grandmother or their mom i want them to be able to get an apartment that they can afford i want that to be real and not just something we talk about i as mayor want to make it happen because you know of my personal experience of really struggling to hold on to san francisco it's changed my life with my family members with my friends like people who I used to hang out with on a regular basis where we just can't hang out anymore. I've watched my friends' kids grow up and now I don't really see them anymore. Like it it really does change your life when you are so far away from family members and friends. I think a lot of people listening can relate to that, to the struggle to stay and yeah. all the compromises that you have to make in order to make it work. Another question that I think is on the mind of a lot of renters is what would it look like in San Francisco if the Costa-Hawkins repeal were to pass? And what's your decision on whether we need Prop 10 to reform rent control? Yeah, I, I support it. You know, one of the challenges when I was supervisor that was most frustrating is people who would come to my office with notices of rent increases anywhere between five hundred and fifteen hundred dollars that in many cases is an eviction notice but i also think that it's important that we think about striking a balance with our local laws so for example if this passes what we need to do is make the right laws so that we don't stop new development either so what would passing the right laws look like like we how would you like to see san francisco well, part respond? of it is, part of it is we are it's important for us to work on clarity around the legal um, requirements under the law, then we will develop the right kind of legislation based on that. So there is no plan that we will be able to put out now without understanding legalities if this law passes. Another issue that San Francisco's had to navigate uh, without knowing exactly what's going to be happening on the state front is safe injection. And the work on this has been going on for a long time. So what what's the plan for San Francisco? We know that you want to open these facilities sooner rather than later, that there are a lot of complicated issues to work out, and that there are a lot of people sitting around the table trying to solve these problems. How, how is that process going? Like how? how yeah, it, it's, it's something that I think people are very interested in seeing us do because I think people want to see how it works. In fact, earlier this year, the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce did a poll and it showed that 67% of San Franciscans actually support the idea of opening one of these sites. And so part of what we are having a discussion with now is trying to decide on what are some of the best practices? What are some of the best locations? Do we do one or several locations? And also we've been able to identify a possible funding source, but there still are concerns around legal related issues. We have to protect the nonprofit organizations. We have to protect the health care professionals that will be a part of this. And we have to do it right and make sure it's in the right location and set it up in a way that people actually use it because it's in close proximity of areas where there are challenges. You know, there are still concerns about federal challenges. We need to be prepared. And, th and that's going to be um, a very challenging thing. But what we are doing now is not working because it's not just about providing a convenient place for people to use drugs. It's about getting them off the streets from doing it openly, getting the needles off the streets, 
and trying to get people who struggle with drug addiction into treatment because the likelihood that they will ask someone in any of these sites for assistance is highly likely than what is happening now. We're not getting people into treatment. And I think the numbers will show that we will probably be able to not only save more lives and save money, but actually get people off drugs. Everyone that I've spoken to in sort of that nonprofit healthcare, public health community is very passionate about this and wants to participate and do anything they can to move it forward. And I've talked to a number of people who said, I would be more than happy to be sued or be the test case if it came to that. Uh, you know, I would like to challenge whatever law is preventing this. We just would like to feel like the city's got our back and we'll be able to come to our defense. Well, I don't, I don't know. think there's anything more powerful than having the mayor support this, but it's not just about being sued. It's about being arrested and charged. And so, again, part of what we have to be very careful of, because, you know, taking a case, I mean, you know, our city attorney has done a great job with challenging things when, for example, with gay marriage and when uh, Gavin Newsom was mayor and Dennis Herrera and the work that his office did um, was absolutely amazing in protecting the city. So I'm, I'm of course, willing to go to court to do what's, whatever is necessary to protect our city and our residents. And the biggest concern here is I don't want federal officials to come in and arrest employees of any of these institutions. I don't want people to be arrested for this. Utterly unscientific. You type in London Breed into Twitter in the search field, and almost all the results are people generally in Soma or around 6th and Market and there's little videos and they say, look, London Breed, here's someone else shooting up. And the other half seem to be, well, London Breed thinks that it's fine for people to inject drugs and wants to, to enable it by having these safe injection facilities. So I wonder how you respond to sort of those two ends of the, again, highly unscientific, but the, the public opinion spectrum. So the sad reality about people who struggle with drug addiction is that just because we don't like it or we don't want to see it doesn't mean that it's going to just go away. I mean, I grew up in public housing. I've, I've lost family members and friends to drug use. I've seen people, you know, strung out. I've seen it all, and I've seen it all throughout my entire life. And what I am trying to do as mayor is figure out a better way to deal with it. My goal is not to necessarily make it attractive. My goal is to try and get people help and to make it easier for someone who is addicted to drugs to get into treatment. Ultimately, that's what I care about. Just imagine if that was you. Again, that could be you, that could be me, that can be anybody. I've seen it. Some of the strongest people I know strung out in the tenderloin, laying out on the ground, digging out of the garbage, eating food. People who are somebody's father, somebody's brother, somebody's cousin. So the question is, how are we going to deal with it? And we deal with it by understanding that addiction is a disease. And how do we make sure that people who struggle with addiction have access when they decide, because that's what happens, they have to decide. You can't force them. They have to decide, I need help. And once they make that decision, we got to be ready right then and there to help them. Because that's the difference between 
you know, having someone be clean and sober for 30 years or having someone be able to have a decent, successful life or go back to their families or having them strung out or end up dead. And part of what I am trying to do as mayor is provide an alternative. And everyone, of course, has the right to their opinion. As mayor, you have to make the hard decisions and you're not going to please everybody. What I want to see happen is a change. Nobody likes to see what we see on our streets. Nobody. And if those folks were not sadly struggling with addiction or caught up in their world, they wouldn't want, who would want to be out on the streets like that? So part of what we have to do as a compassionate city is provide an alternative and provide a real chance for treatment. What did you see in Vancouver as far as the number of people that get out into treatment? You know, it's been there for 15 years now. Maybe they have some good data on how many people actually did use it in that way. Yeah, and they have, um, based on their data, it showed that close to 4,000 people have actually gotten into detox that have not come back through their system. And then secondly, they have people who have gone through their system who actually work at the location. Insight wasn't the only place. They also had another pop-up location, which included a market. It was all tented. It was all undercover. And right outside of this particular area, which is an old parking lot, the streets were clean. And part of my conversations with some of the people who sadly are using drugs was that, you know, they feel like it's their responsibility to keep it clean because they don't want it to go away. And one day they're going to want help. And this is the place that they know they can come to get the help. That was a consistent uh, message of people who I talked to, even while they were kind of shooting up. And the people who worked in these facilities, in many cases, know what it felt like to be, sadly, one of those persons. They, they basically were, were excited about being there because they had struggled with addiction. And they knew one day that somebody that was coming there all the time to shoot up was going to ask for their help, and they were looking forward to that day. That's what they were excited about. I was like, how are you, you know, why are you so excited and happy and smiling? And they're like, we don't like to see this either, but we know they're going to come to us for help, and that's what we look forward to. And I thought, wow, that's a great attitude. Did you apply some of that data to San Francisco's estimated number of people who use injection drugs and Think about like how many people uh, a site might be able to help in the first year, five years, 10 years. Well, the data, um, we, we looked at that data, of course, but the data that we um, developed had everything to do um, with the estimates that we know we're spending on things like hospital visits, on people who contract hepatitis and HIV, and looking at the numbers and how they're going down because the needle exchange and also the social services and all of what we do, we looked at the cost estimates of what that could mean, as well as the number of people who inject drugs based on our needle exchange program is estimated to be about 22,000 people um, here in San Francisco. So part of, you know, developing a plan had a lot to do with what we know is based on the needle exchange and all the things that we do and made an estimate of what we believe we can save in terms of dollars and also a suggestion that we would need more than just one site. You mentioned public opinion and how it's impossible to satisfy everyone, and you just have to forge your own path and do what you think is best. And that reminded me of how you famously said you are not beholden to a frequent guest here on KCBS, former Mayor Willie Brown. 
And I was thinking actually of a different constituency. I have noticed in my coverage of various city issues, another constituency uh, that really expresses a sense of we took care of you, we elected you, and now we expect a great deal from you. And I'm thinking in this sense of everyone from your, it wasn't even your kindergarten teacher. The day that you gave sort of the victory speech at Rosa Parks Elementary, she was a substitute kindergarten teacher, okay? And she remembers and loves you and was there to sit in the front row with a lot of other women, a lot of the moms who were like, this is our girl. We brought her up and we expect certain things. We, we expect greatness. Uh, but then there can also be times, I was in your office the day that a group of women widows from the Bayview and Hunter's Point demanding a meeting. And your staff was very gracious in saying, we'll be sure to schedule something. Do you feel, we've heard you express gratitude to the women who've raised you, but I wonder if you feel any sense of obligation toward uh, that constituency. The, The thing is, I feel an obligation towards all residents of San Francisco. And and the other thing is, you know, I am who I am. So I'm going to do things the way that I want to do things. And I am open to suggestions from other folks. I'm here to be a mayor for all San Franciscans. Um, the group that came in, which actually included one widow um, of someone whose husband died from cancer, who was my personal friend since we were kids. Um, you know, basically, I, I am totally aware Um, of the situation and I have had a meeting with them um, because I'm here for them. I'm here um, for all of the residents of this city and part of being the mayor means that you have to address these issues. You have to make sure that you're doing everything you can to communicate responsibly, to be responsive in general, and to really provide leadership to get the kinds of results that are going to make things better for people. Um, I'm really proud that so many people from so many parts of the city supported my candidacy for mayor. But I don't just represent the people who supported me. I represent everybody. I'm here. I represent the people who are sleeping on our streets. I represent the people who are living in public housing who have felt neglected for so many years. I represent the people who are on the west side of town who don't get the kind of attention that they feel they deserve. And so when making the kinds of decisions that you have to make as mayor, you have to take into consideration, how does this make San Francisco a better place? And a group of people may want you to do one thing, but you know in your heart sometimes, even from personal experience, that it may not be the right thing to do. And in a a, a position like this, you will not please everyone. And all you can do is your very best. And I wake up every single morning thinking about how am I going to make San Francisco better? How am I going to get closer to the promises that I made to the people of San Francisco? I do this job because of my own personal experiences of losing so many family members and friends to homicide, to drugs, to the criminal justice system, to all of the things that if we make the right changes, if we make the right decisions, this does not have to continue to happen to the next generation of San Franciscans who are growing up here. You said you wake up every morning, you want to get closer to those promises you've made to San Francisco. Let's say we're having this conversation again in 2019, a year from now. 
What goals do you have for this year? What promises do you want us to hold you to? Well, you know, I'm hoping that we could at least strengthen our conservatorship laws, and we're well on our way to do that. I want to get to a place where safe injection sites hopefully is a reality. I want us to have more housing, and I want our streets to be cleaner. And I want our transit system to be running better. Muni will have to be a topic for another day. Mayor London Breed, thank you so much for making the time for KCBS today. And I do hope you will come back to talk with us again on In-Depth. Thank you. Happy to be here. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.